Welcome to Greenfish Blue Oceans, the podcast where stories about seafood are good for you in the oceans. I'm Maureen Barry. Today, I'm tackling J is for jellies and Jewfish. Of all the marine species in the ocean, the jellyfish and comb jellies have got to be the most unusual. Not only are they fascinating to watch in an aquarium with their carefree, free-floating gelatinous bodies, jellies have no brains, no backbone, no organ, teeth, or fins. In fact, a jelly body is 95% water. These beautiful jellyfish and comb jellies have been drifting through the ocean currents for over 500 million years. You've probably seen a jellyfish or two, either washed ashore on the beach or in a bloom if you've been out fishing or on a boat. Maybe you've even been stung by a jellyfish, although you might like to know that not all jellies are stingers. According to the Smithsonian, all jellyfish are Snideria, an animal phylum that contains jellies, sea anemones, and corals, among others. There are more than 10,000 species of Snideria, and less than 4,000 of these are Medusozoa. <laughs> okay, why all the big words, okay? Uh, anyway, these animals are what we think of as jellyfish. Those 4,000 jellyfish can be divided into four different groups. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. There's a link in the show notes, but just wanted to let you know how many species of jellyfish there are. And scientists are just beginning to explore the deepest parts of the ocean in a historical sense compared to space, for instance. In April of 2016, a spectacular new jelly species was discovered at 3,700 meters or a little over two miles down during a NOAA deepwater exploration of the Mariana Trench. Of all the unknowns and yet-to-be-discovered things about jellies, there are some things fishermen and scientists agree on. There are more jelly blooms in the ocean today than ever before. Jelly blooms occur for many reasons. The invasive Australian jellyfish tend to be fist-sized in their native waters, but in the Gulf in the U.S., they can be as big as a dinner plate, feeding off industrial waste and pollution. They also compete for commercially important fish for food. They eat the larvae of these fish. And while they present no danger in terms of their sting, they still are a problem. The cannibal jellyfish is reputed to be one of the least venomous, but at times causing problems for shrimp fishermen by clogging their nets. A swarm of cannonball jellyfish was sighted in Texas and estimated to be drifting through the pass at a rate of 2 million individuals per hour. Whew, that's a lot. Interestingly, jellies are a food source for turtles, which could be a good thing, right? Except there's also plastic in the oceans, and plastic chokes turtles. I put a YouTube video in the show notes of a turtle feeding frenzy on jellies, so check that out after the podcast. On other jelly fronts, I mistakenly thought that all jellies are stingers, but that's just not true. So you might want to know which are the most dangerous. 
according to Planet Deadly. Box jellyfish are the most dangerous jellies. Found in Australia, one jelly has enough venom to off 60 humans. Here's another hard tongue-twisting word. Irakanji jelly, that's spelled I-R-U-K-A-N-D-J-I. One of the smallest box jellies can be found in Australia and as far north as the British Isles, with venom 100 times more powerful than a cobra. That's pretty powerful. And then there's the Portuguese man-o-war, commonly called blue bottle, which can be found throughout the oceans of the world. And the thing is, it's not a true jellyfish, but a colony of organisms. The lion's mane jellyfish looks formidable. It is the largest jelly, coming in at a whopping 8 feet or more across the bell and 100 feet in tentacles. It can be found throughout the North Atlantic and UK. Interesting to know, like most jellyfish, the stings remain active for a considerable time after death. And lastly, there's the sea nettle, common on both coasts of the U.S., but predominant in the Chesapeake Bay area during the summer months. Their stings are painful, but not fatal. So beyond their bizarre shapes and sizes, can jellies be used for science, research, or medicine? So far, there's no scientific evidence to support that, even though there is a supplement on the market made from jellies claiming to help aid in memory loss. But it's not approved by the FDA. However, just because there isn't a useful purpose for jellies in the real world, in my newest novel, A Work in Progress, jellies play a prominent role. Enter the Fish Thieves. In 2025, Research specialist and twins, Trina and Tristan Lewis, are working on a cure for cancer in New Orleans when Hurricane Ambrosia and its ensuing tsunami destroy the Gulf Coast, decimating entire communities across the Southwest. Millions are forced to relocate to a newly formed territory called Texicana, where the water is polluted, the government is corrupted, and Big Ag is gobbling up the new territory using former prisoners as slave labor and security forces. Fast forward 10 years, the Lewis twins discover a new protein in the water that can be modified to develop a new clean food source. Before they develop the prototype, a trader in their lab divulges their findings to the government for a large payoff. Will the twins flee north with their findings? Or will they stay and work with the government, whom they have learned to despise? Chapter 1 Hacking his way through saw palms and moss over piles of downed water oaks, cypress, and pines, Tristan made his way toward the water. He smelled the brackish, sulfur-tainted salt water before he reached the fence and the faded yellow, no trespassing signs. The distinctive shimmer from the activity below the surface, thousands of tiny moon jellies and hopefully shrimp fry, made the risk of being caught worth the trip. The sun cast long, deep shadows across the water like black swords. An alligator lay high on the bank several hundred feet to his left. Its beady yellow eyes glowed in the pre-dawn light. The area to Tristan's right was deep in shadow. He couldn't see the guard, but he could smell the sweet, pungent smoke from his cannabis. Tristan removed the first of five small canisters from his backpack. He scooped up the shimmering, gelatinous jellies, aware of the soft, splashing water he was creating, 
the gator on his left, and the guards somewhere nearby. Trina, his twin sister, was out there too, closer to the guard than the gator. He knew there was only one guard on this early spring morning, but he knew if there was one gator, there would be many. Not to mention the other unknowns in the woods that he couldn't see, the exiles, more dangerous than the hungry gators. Five minutes later, he crouched behind a thatch of brush and croaked, like the great blue heron of the past. Trina emerged from a small, cave-like structure dug into the hillside. They'd built it a few years back when they had more freedom, when they first settled in Texacana. It was a place to escape and plan their future, to create a clean protein to feed the desperate and growing global population. Any problems, he said. The guard? <laughs> Wasted. I could have taken him, she said. There'll be another time, he said, and reapplied the mildewed dirt on his cheeks. He was a profuse sweater. He pressed his lips inward, wincing from the crack on his lower lip while he applied the dirt. A mosquito buzzed in his ear. He swatted at it and then dug in the earth for another handful of dirt to apply to his ears. No guarantee his sidekick isn't far off, she said, and squared her shoulders as if she were preparing for battle. She smelled the almost still air and then cocked her head to the right. She lifted her finger to her lips. They stood silent for a count of ten, her rule, one that Tristan teased her about, but only lightly. Trina's keen sense of smell had saved them on more than one occasion, but her stubbornness had gotten them into trouble on more than one occasion, too. Maybe a coon, he said, and stooped to take another handful of dirt from underneath a rotting log. A cockroach scurried from underneath. Trina snatched it up, popped it in her mouth. Next one's yours, she said with a smirk. Another crackle came from the dense forest. Someone was close. Tristan removed the forty-four from his shoulder holster and held up his hand, palm open. This was his sign to not move. Trina's hand went to the bowie knife on her hip. Sweat beaded on Tristan's lower back and arms. He smelled ripe, but was beyond caring. Again, they waited, alert to the dangers of the woods, the jellies in the canisters, and the impending lightness of the day. They'll kill you if they catch you, Trina said. She rebraided her long black hair through her fingers where it had come loose, her nose pointed toward the slate-gray morning sky. They won't think twice about your life either, he said. Tristan was more afraid for Trina than he was for himself, though he knew she was more than capable of killing a grown man or two. They took turns on these runs. Today was her turn to monitor and watch the guards while he collected water samples and jellies. I'll meet you at the lab 20 minutes, he said. We'll see about that, she said in a mocking tone. He knew the weight of the water would slow him down, but not by much, and he knew she knew it too. She flipped her hand in a soldier salute at him and then sprinted through the forest, light as a gazelle, silent as a fox. Tristan tucked the pistol in his side holster and took off in the opposite direction. Welcome back to the J is for Jewfish or the Goliath grouper part of the program. In May 2001, it took a petition with 40 names 
to the American Fishery Society to change the names of the Jewfish to the Goliath Grouper. Gary David Grossman spearheaded the project, along with senior fishery scientists. Now that the name thing is out of the way, and Goliath Grouper populations, once teetering on the endangered list, are rebounding, fishermen and conservationists are again disagreeing about whether to fish and kill Goliaths. For decades, conservationists and fishermen have worked together regarding all things ocean and marine life, and in many instances, they have worked from opposing positions. The Goliath grouper is a massive, slow-moving creature. It's a voracious eater, and it can be found in warm, temperate climates off the southeast in the United States. Goliaths spend their time in mangroves as juveniles and then as adults on the bottom of the ocean on coral reefs. When they are ready to spawn, they go to the wrecks to release their eggs. The problem is, fishermen claim these monster fish, which can be up to 800 pounds, are decimating fish populations and thus the fishermen's livelihood. And conservationists are, well, they're conservationists. They aren't satisfied that populations have rebounded. And fishermen will be fishermen. Fishing is a way of life, not just a livelihood, though. But there's something else to consider when it comes to Goliath groupers. Despite the differences between the fishermen, the scientists, and the name, these super-large fish are loaded with mercury, just as any other large fish is. And that, my friends, is something you should avoid eating for obvious health reasons. I'm glad the Goliath shed its previous name. I never thought it was appropriate. And like Dr. Grossman said, changing a fish's name isn't going to create world peace. But it does make things less controversial. And we could all use a little more niceness and a little less controversy in our lives these days. Thanks for listening to Greenfish Blue Oceans. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. If you like this podcast and know somebody who would enjoy it, please share. Thanks. And have a great two weeks. Next up, K is for kelp and king crab.